in a world full of negative people. Hey man, I'm just trying to be a positive guy, a positive farmer, a positive outfitter. This is the Shark Farmer Podcast with your host, Rob Sharkey. Whatever. And welcome again to Shark Farmer Podcast. Hey, I'm your host, Rob Sharkey. And today, well, today whoa, we're going to go... Whoa, 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 Oh, yeah. Hello. Oh, today. Yes. Uh, today we're going to be doing something nice. different. Um, this is going to be a crossover podcast with my co-host from the What the Farm Podcast. Please welcome to my podcast, <laughs> Leslie Kelly from Saskatchewan. Hi, oh. Leslie. Hello. You know what I just did? I'm sure I don't. I just podcast bombed you. Is that a thing? Like a photo bomb, but podcast bomb. It is not a thing, and uh, it'll never be a thing. <laughs> but I mean, it is what it is. We decided to do a crossover. Now, yesterday on the What the Farm, we interviewed Leona Watson from the Yukon Territories about her world travels and what she's doing, ambassador ships and stuff like that. But today, we're going to get into her backstory. And I've invited you along because I thought this was a good way to cross-promote. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, I'm along for the ride. Yes, you are. I do not have high hopes for this. And I, I want to pre-apologize <laughs> to Leona for how bad this is going to go. Oh, I have high hopes because Leona is amazing. Uh-huh. Leona, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Well, you know, i got to say I had a lot of fun yesterday. So I'm actually looking quite forward to today. You're not kind of pregnant. You're a pregnant pregnant. And probably by the time this podcast comes out, you will no longer be pregnant. Is that fair to say? Yes. My due date's in five days. So any time now. So, Leslie, no hard questions. <laughs> Please don't call for speed. Okay. After this interview, you need to kick back and relax and maybe watch some TV, some Netflix, and uh, watch a movie. Hey, speaking of movies, you two, have you ever heard of the movie Silo, the film? Yes. I've heard of it, but never watched it yet. Yeah. What it is, is this guy from New York, he, he produced it, Samuel Goldberg. He knew nothing about ag, but he heard about grain entrapments, you know, people getting caught inside grain bins. Unfortunately, this week, just north of me, a farmer that everybody knew in the neighborhood just got caught and unfortunately passed away in a grain bin. And it just, it brought home again and again and again. But this guy, he's from New York. He's got no ties to ag before this. He heard about these and he's like, well, somebody ought to do something. So he made a movie. One of those independent films, you know, Emily and I went to watch it at Farm Progress Show. They did a screening. And honestly, I went in there and I thought, you know, low budget, independent, Generally, those kind of suck because the acting sucks in that. You ever seen those type of films? Many. The odd one. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of them have a decent story, but most of people can't act their way out of a wet paper bag. Well, not this film. I was unbelievably impressed because I went in there with a bad attitude, but Emily wanted to go see this movie. And by the end of it, I was blown away because not only did it have great acting and a great story, but it tells a valuable lesson about grain bin safety. So, do you guys want to know how you can see it? Yes. Yeah, you can't go to the theaters. Do you have theaters in the Yukon, Leona? You know, surprisingly, we have two. <laughs> and if you go to the ratings online, <laughs> some people are just horrified. But I'm actually quite content to have what we have up here. I mean, it might be a little stinky in certain sections, but um, you get by. Do you have chairs in the theater? 
Yeah, they're like super old school. It's like car chairs. They desperately yeah. need, need a rental. <laughs> it's like those uh, like, old aluminum folding chairs that you would take on ooh. a picnic. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're slightly more advanced than that. Like, you know, cushiony, but the cushion's pretty worn out. All right, Leslie, when I went up in your neck of the woods, you guys have bins coming out your ears, but they're like smaller bins. And they all seem like they're the hopper bottom. So they're ones that cone at the bottom. Do you guys have green entrapment accidents up there? Yes, unfortunately we do. I know of people who have lost loved ones. Mm -hmm. It's a horrible situation because I know everybody's kind of been working in grain bins and, you know, you're messing around and you get like even up to your knees and you realize how hard it is to get out. So anyway... If you want to see this movie, you arrange screening. So you like go to your local farm bureaus, you go to your banks that have the ag meetings, or you set it up yourself. You go to silothefilm.com and you set up a screening. I'm telling you, the cost of it is about what you would pay a speaker to come to these meetings anyway. The movie, 75 minutes. They give you the movie and then they give you like a packet to where you can hold it like a discussion afterwards. So it's not just entertainment. They want to remind people about grain safety, grain handling safety, all that stuff that we tend to forget about when we're busy. So please go to silothefilm.com and check this out. Except you two. You two need to finish the podcast. Can I bring one of these events to Saskatchewan? Well, you're damn right you can. I'm sure Samuel is all about international stuff. It's all about helping farmers and entertaining, Leslie. So it doesn't matter if you're from Saskatchewan the Yukon Territories, or, I don't know, Dallas? <laughs> Dallas. <laughs> that was random. <laughs> was it, was I, I don't want it. All right, thank you. Yes. Anyway, silothefilm.com. That's how we do ads on this podcast, Leslie. All right. Yesterday in What the Farm, Leona, we talked to you, but I want you to give us some background, because we mainly talked about your traveling and what you're doing as far as trying to help the world in agriculture, meeting other women. But let's learn about you. Tell us about little Leona growing up on a farm. Yeah, no worries. I mean, we joke about how I now live and am homestead farming up in the Yukon here by Whitehorse. But I actually born and raised on a family farm. I'm the oldest of five girls. No brothers. Yeah, five daughters on the five girls. Farm in North, northeastern Alberta. What yeah. position do you <laughs> yeah, play yeah. on the basketball team? Well, we had no time to play basketball. <laughs> we were too busy farming, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gosh, we lived in, you know, just rural communities. So I graduated high school with a class of 19 students. And my four sisters and I were as much as the farm as, as mom and dad, really. So growing up, like a, since a very young age, we started picking rocks and picking sticks in the fields and then driving quads and chasing cattle and checking cattle and cleaning bunks and then driving, you know, the bigger equipment as we got a little bit older and operating the seed drill and the sprayer and the trucks and the feed truck and kind of everything. <laughs> they were one heck of a crew. And yeah, mom and dad were quite excited to go on vacation every year because we had things handled. Um, not to say that we didn't have a little bit of extra help on the farm, because we did have, um, and still do have, one hired man, Richard Cadron, and him and his family is, have been extremely supportive of us. 
So mom and dad started from scratch and the farm grew to be about a 4,000 head feedlot. And then we farmed up to 7,000 acres of land. Wow. Um, so that was, whoa, yeah, whoa, no, whoa, whoa. 4,000 <laughs> head and 7,000 in land. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. Well, dad was lucky. You know, he didn't have four boys. He had five girls that got the work done and didn't break down the equipment. And, uh, oh, you know, please. <laughs> I know. With that big of an operation, did you have lots of employees or was it mainly up to the, you know, Richard and you girls to help out on the farm? Pretty much Richard and us. I remember in 2007, so that was the first year. I mean, up until, you know, enough of us had driver's license and could legally drive, you know, silage trucks and, and that sort of thing. So in 2007, when we were working on silage we were yeah a full crew so one of my sisters was in the tractor packing the silage so she was packing the pit mom was driving I was driving Lynn was driving Richard was a truck driver the two youngest sisters were making meals and then dad was in the forge harvester so we were yeah we were like a full crew and because we did have meals right we took that time to have evening meals in the field take that you know 45 minutes hour off yeah, I remember dad saying, man, aren't we lucky, you know, like to be able to do what we do. And, and we just had such a great day and everybody just worked hard and worked together. And, and it was all about throwing jokes at each other and getting on the two-way radio and just having fun, working hard, but having fun. And so that was kind of a neat moment. And yeah, to kind of get to there. I mean, before then, yeah, we would have definitely had to hire a few extra hands here and there to help out with the busy season, but was otherwise... It, okay, let me ask you this. With uh, the hired man, is it different with the girls? Because I think in a lot of the cases where the hired man actually teaches the farm son, the birds, and the bees. <laughs> he's like a second dad to us, right? So he's been with us since the very start of the farm, almost, and we're close friends with his kids and, and his family, so... He's uh, just Grandpa Richard, I guess, is what we call him. But <laughs> gosh, he's a he's a thick guy that works hard. That's for sure. Well, that's awesome. So, growing up, the five girls, did you all think that you were going to be farmers when you grow up, or did you have different aspirations? Um. Yeah. So, I guess when I graduated high school, Dad was in the living room reading his mile high stash of you know farm papers that he could never really get a handle on. And mom and I were sitting at the kitchen table going through course calendars of universities and colleges, trying to decide what my next step was going to be or if I was going to apply to post-secondary education. And dad kind of hollered. He's like, hey, Ona, why don't you go to Olds College and find a rich farm boy? Well, yeah. And I kind of laughed. I was like, rich farm boy. <laughs> like, there's no such thing. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? But nonetheless, I actually did go to Olds College and took my applied degree in agriculture business. And Lynn, the second oldest, um, she went to Olds College as well and took the same program that dad took at Olds. When Lynn graduated, it was um, agricultural production. And when dad was there, he was a farm and ranch technologist. So short for fart. God, you people up north, you just, you live in your own little world, don't you? Uh, (laughs) But nonetheless, so the two oldest of us 
yeah, definitely knew that we were headed down the route of running our own farming operations and recognizing that, yeah, farming and agriculture is truly our passion. And not only because we were raised that way, because mom and dad definitely supported us to pursue the things that we wanted to pursue. So the middle sister, Sarah, she's a veterinarian. And the second youngest, Suzanne, she's a wedding planner and a makeup artist. And the youngest is now a registered dietitian. We all kind of play a significant role on the farm or, or whatnot. But that only kind of came through this middle challenge that later in 2007, so when I'm talking about that silage season, mom and dad decided to take you know, the weekend off, right? Like how many farmers in the middle of harvest will say, nope, you know, the weather's beautiful this weekend. Let's take the weekend off and go spend time with family. So we had a few cousins graduating high school in northwestern Alberta. So we went up there and because we were lucky to see them once, maybe twice a year. Mm-hmm. And so we went up there to, to visit them. And dad was a pilot, had a great weekend on our way home. Us girls, we drove and uh, well, Lynn stayed back to, to help out with farm chores and whatnot. On our way back, mom, dad and one of our grandmas didn't quite make it back home because they were in a plane accident. And so that next morning when we had reported that mom and dad had not landed at the farm and, you know, just thought to ourselves that they, they landed somewhere safe, you know, they got into bad weather or, or whatnot, but everything's okay. And so then there was two policemen that came out to the farm early that morning. I'm sitting with them outside on the front porch Lynn got up. Lynn was the second one to get up early that morning. She started to feed all the cattle in, in the yard. And um, one of the officers told me, they're like, I'm sorry, Leona, but your parents won't be coming home. And I so vividly remember, you know, looking up to the beautiful sunrise in the east that had bright hues of orange and pink and purple over the green bins, over the cattle that were in the front pasture in front of the house and everything that we had built together as a family because mom and dad envisioned it. And, you know, lo and behold, we made it happen all together as a, as a team, as a family, as a farming unit. So we had so much to be grateful for. And I remember my first thought being that everything is going to be okay. And then from there, it was just a new challenge in life lots of decisions to be made to decide how we want to live our lives and what kind of people we want to become. How old were you? So I was 22 at the time and my youngest sister was 15. After that policeman told you, I mean, was that just you? Did you have to go and tell each of your sisters? Yeah, to be honest, everything after that was a bit of a blur. Sure. Um, because, you know, word spread super quickly. And then we had a, all of a sudden a ton of people on the farm because everybody just wants to help out and it's crazy overwhelming. And, and, and grief is so different for everybody. You know, you have family members and friends that are trying to help you out, but they're grieving as well. With a couple like mom, dad um, in our area, people, people looked up to them. They truly led by example in doing the things that they really wanted to do and in living life to its fullest. They were so outgoing, so spontaneous, um, got along with everybody. And I think 
lived fuller of a life than a lot of people will in their lifetime, to be honest, because of the attitude that they had. So you were saying how it was a beautiful weekend. What happened? You know what, Leslie, we honestly have no idea. I remember some of the details as far as, you know, they did end up clipping one of the guide wires on one of the lights on, the, I guess, Swan Hills area, but the light of the tower wasn't working reportedly. Who knows? Dad could have had a heart attack. Something happened to dad is kind of my best guess, but, you know, that wasn't something that my sisters and I really wanted to pursue to look for closure or anything like that. Like, cause it could have been a plane part. There was a recall on one of the plane parts, like a couple weeks later of a letter that we got in the mail. So many factors. So, I mean, overall in the big picture though, cause that was 12 years ago now that my sisters and I, you know, we're just kind of grateful to have had the memories that we created together. And we have so much to be grateful for. We focus on the positive. That's not an option to focus on the negative and go, Oh, poor me because people go through adversity every day and it's how you come out on the other side. That's the important bit. And, you know, like I said, what you choose to do with your lives and the influences you choose to make um, in the people around you. That's truly important. So how do you do that? Because I'm asking because I want to be more like that. I'm putting myself in your shoes. I would demand to know whether it was that part or whether it was a light or what it was, because I would want to know if it was somebody else's fault even though probably it's not going to do anybody any good. How would you and your sisters come to the conclusion that you were just going to move on and focus on the good things? I think that it was the example that mom and dad led and how we were raised and how hard we worked on the farm together. We were taught values of hard work, communication, working together, having respect and taking responsibility and and being accountable for the jobs that we did on the farm. Because for as little as the job was, let's say, you know, picking rocks, that mom and dad taught us that it was as important, whether you're picking that rock, that the combine's not going to eat up and cause a half-day breakdown later on in the harvest season, that, you know, for the farm to be successful, to make money, because this was our livelihood, they put food on the table, clothes on our backs, a roof over our heads, and memories that we created together. So there was a time to work hard, and then there was a time to play hard. So we did lots of ice fishing and camping and and any kind of little moment that we got to spend together as family, we did. And so I feel that some time after, right, like once you get through your stages of grieving and, you know, us five girls, we look to each other for the closest form of support and the strongest form of support that we just remembered mom and dad because we are who our parents are or, and who the people that we look up to around us, that's who really we all become. So I think, yeah, it was just by their example. It was just ingrained in us, I feel like. So I'm thinking when I graduated from university, I was 22. I was very, very selfish. All I wanted to do was focus on me. And here you are, the loss of your parents. How did that change your life plan? Did you become the primary parent and the primary head farmer? So I'd say that Lynn and I kind of jointly did that together. So we both lived in our old farmhouse at the time. So we moved back into the main farmhouse where my two youngest sisters were still in high school. And the middle sister, Sarah, she was in university. 
So the accident happened mid-August. And with school starting kind of right around the corner, the University of Alberta was very generous um, and they pulled together some funds. And I believe they paid for Sarah's year of university in pre-vet that year because she said, she's like, well, I'm not going to take a year off or anything. I'm just going to go the same thing, full steam ahead and keep doing what I want to do. Soon after Christmas, I got a job with the local John Deere dealership and I was their GPS saleswoman installation, kind of did did a various jobs with the John Deere dealership there. And then Lynn took on the main role of managing the farm because I kind of realized at that point that, you know, Lynn and I were both going to be farmers, but for us to be like the two decision makers was going to be very challenging because she's a lot more strong-willed than I am and I'm too much of a softie. So I probably would have gotten walked all over, whereas she has just like been a diamond in the rough and stayed strong to her guns and now farms the family farm even to this day with her husband and three children. And um, yeah, so she took over the family farm. During the next six years is how long it took for, I guess, to get through our parents' estate because mom and dad's will was from 87 when only two of us were born. And I say, you know, like, would things have been different? Probably. But we'll never know because we never had that conversation with mom and dad. We were about to. We were just at that point where, you know, we were about to talk about the farm future and kind of what we wanted and what did mom and dad want. But because we hadn't done that, then we had to deal with what we had. So there again, being small town, it was small town lawyer, an executor who tried his best and, and it just, it took longer than what it needed to. I mean, uh-huh. yeah, there was a few hiccups along the way, but overall it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about anything else. It was just about setting the girls up for success for their livelihoods. Was there ever a discussion between you five girls to what is going to happen? Do we just sell it, divide it, and move on with our lives? Or was it always a goal to keep that farm intact? I think this is something that I actually mentioned a little bit yesterday. Um, You know, five girls, there was definitely the people who knew us were like, oh yeah, these girls got it. Because running the farm was the easy part, right? It's the farm work and the, um, the transparency mom and dad had given us, you know, with the accountants even with the lawyers of the process of where the farm was headed, that was the easy part. It was dealing with the estates and with the emotional human factor of what people thought we should be doing. And so by hearing things like, there's no way these five girls are going to be able to continue the farm. It's too hard. You know, farming is too hard of a lifestyle. All those negative thoughts, it gave us kind of, in in a way, more drive to prove them wrong, especially Lynn. So when we did sit down to decide, okay, you know, this is the farmland that we own. This is the farmland that we lease. We had to let go some of it. We kept some of it um, for the people who we had a closer relationship with. And, And same thing, right, with the fertilizer companies, with the chem companies, with everybody that we worked with that it took to run, you know, a farming business. Us as farmers, we can't do it all. We definitely have to rely on um, industry experts and whatnot. So, so Lynn, Lynn was like, nope. She's like, I want to take this on. And we said, awesome. The rest of us are here to help you out with 
running the equipment and getting the job done. Richard was close by, and so he didn't go anywhere. And we just, yeah, year after year kept doing it. And then I kind of played the middle role within the estate of communicating with the accountant, with the lawyer, with the executor. Okay, what do we need next? What's the process? What information do you need from us? And let's move through this thing. So that's what we did. It sounds so matter of fact. I mean, it just, it sounds like you almost had a playbook for this. I try to imagine if I would have lost my parents at 22, I wouldn't have known what to do firsthand. To me, it's just amazing how you five came together and figured this out. I don't know, Leslie, am I the only one that's stunned by this? Yeah, so my dad has battled cancer for about a year, and even thinking if he were to no longer farm, all the things that we had to do, and there was times where I was completely overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do, who to talk to, and I just cried. Was there any of that, Leona, when you look back? I mean, was there times where it was just too overwhelming not knowing what to do? Yeah, and I guess I'm not kind of not alluding to the fact that, you know, things were definitely challenging with in the estate bit, right? Because you have to figure out, you know, everybody wants to do things the most efficient way. And what farmers today might not realize is that, okay, so when I when I talk about succession planning um, and try to give some people some key points, well, number one, there's not going to be a farm to succeed if your farm's not making money or diversifying or is not a successful business, right? If we're just passing it on from generation to generation for the sole purpose of because we want to keep it in the family, but yet we're not changing things um, and taking advantages of the opportunities presented today in the farming sector, then it's just a loss. Then it's a burden. Then you start getting into mental health issues more so, I think. I'm not sure what the percentages would be, especially down in the States. Like, What percentage do you think... Of farmers even have a will or an estate plan? Well, I would think a lot, but then you find out that it's not. And right. I'm sitting here right. with four kids. We've got a very weak will that basically yeah. names uh, where our kids go. But mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen it even in landlords too, where the will, I've got one case where of the farmer died and the way it's set up, it goes half to his wife and then half to the kids, and then the kids divide their part up. I was stunned that that's actually law, that that happens if it's not specifically all going to the wife. Yeah. And and that's where, if you have wishes of things wanting to be a certain way, then you've got to write that down, and you've got to work through that, the plan of your estate. Now, some of the key factors in there, like you alluded to, anytime you have minors, then that's where you have to have a legal, legal guardians. And, and then you'll, you know, be naming an executor or co-executorship or whatever, you know, you want in your situation of the person who becomes personally liable to fulfill the wishes of your will. And then you'll have the beneficiaries. So when I did my, in, in my international study, my Nuffield scholarship um, and learned about succession from families in Australia, New Zealand, um, and the UK is that, some of the proactive farm families, they chose an advisor or a family friend or a fellow neighbor 
to be their executor because they understood the business. They had a good working relationship with the lawyer and the accountant already, and they could listen to and guide the will, like the probate, I guess, process of the will in working hand in hand with the beneficiaries, but essentially taking on that main responsibility. When you have a beneficiary who's also the executor, well, then, you know, it might seem a little bit one-sided. It might seem that, you know, the beneficiaries might gain up on that one person, right, that one brother or sister who's making the right call on behalf of the will process, but because their beneficiary, you know, might seem that they're doing it for themselves. Like, that's when things kind of get confusing. And, And what's sad to see is when beneficiaries Sons and daughters have entitlement over their parents' estate. Yes, which I don't think a lot of people realize. Yeah, it blows me away when old 40-some, 50s, 60s, 70-some-year-old children (laughs) fight over (laughs) their parents' estate. Come on, guys, like, give your head a shake. Your parents have provided for you. And that's where, like, a lot of parents that I've spoke to, they're like, oh, but we want to give everything that they have to their kids and they're not even living a fully retired life now. I'm like, no, but what do you want to do? And I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons why people don't have a will yet because they don't want to grab the bull by the horns and say, Hey, this is my retirement, my life. I want to do the things that do these things that, that we might not be able to afford if we're focused on giving our children all of our money when we die. So it is a bit of that family dynamic and we can't do our family farm succession planning based on the neighbors because everybody's going to be different, but being upfront about it and talking about it. I asked my grandpa, I'm like, Hey, babe, do you have a will? And he's like, why are you asking? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, this is what I talk about. Like, this is what, you know, part of my career, part of what I do. Well, do the aunts and uncles know what's in your will? And you know, they're again, a very old school answer Nope, they'll find out when I'm dead. Uh, and so I left it at that. Man, I'm like, it could be done so much better. And I'd like to think that farm families nowadays are being more proactive, are talking about their wills, because the, the best the best wills are the ones where, hey, the executor knows what's in the will, knows their responsibilities, the legal guardians know who they are, the beneficiaries hear it, have a sit down, you know, with mom and dad around the family table, or in a neutral position, maybe they're all on vacation, maybe they're somewhere else having a family meeting and talking about the will, but listening to mom and dad on what their wishes are and respecting them for that. Instead of in the time of grief and reading the will for the first time, then getting defensive, right? Because they're over emotional already mm-hmm. <laughs> at that most critical time. So communication, talking about it is probably the most important piece of having your estate planned out, having a will. I mean, all the stuff in between like tax and estate fees are all things to be aware of. Life insurance is definitely a tool that you can use if something is important to you that you wanted a certain amount of money to go to the non-farming siblings, for example. But to remember that equal is always fair, but fair is rarely equal. Yes, yes. And that brings up Probably the biggest problem in farm estates is when you have the one or two kids that are actively farming or helping with the farm, and then you have the siblings that are not, 
and the parents want to keep the farm intact, so they're giving those kids that are back farming more. So it isn't a fair deal, but it was the parents' wishes to keep the farm going. So that's what they have to nail down in writing beforehand, and it's sad when it doesn't happen. I think one of the families that I've seen communicate the best in agriculture is Leslie's family. So do you guys talk about this on your farm, Leslie? We do. We each have shared our will. We know everyone's executors. We have a team that during, you know, if we had an unfortunate event, who would be able to help us? And we did. We sat down and the first thing my parents had to do was figure out what they needed to live. And we wanted them to live comfortably. We wanted them to travel and what that looked like. And that was the first step in then figuring out what the farm would look like. And probably one of the most important parts for a lot of farm families in that process, Leslie, is that it's okay to hire help. Like there's farm mediators out there, there's farm succession advisors out there that can help you with this process and help you save money in the long run and and, then help the family for the communications of the family dynamics. I mean, it is, you know, you're leading by example and your children will take that example and hopefully do the same thing themselves one day. We're talking about this like it's not hard. I remember, I just, I never wanted to say that I wanted the farm because I almost felt like that was unfair. I've got five older sisters that didn't come back to the farm. They all want to see the farm intact. So they were all like even pushing me to say it. But I didn't want to admit that I wanted to take over the farm because I felt that was one-sided. It's not always even someone that is wanting too much. As farmers, we need to be more open about what we actually want. And if you're the kid and they're farming and you want to farm it, you need to tell your parents and your siblings. And I know damn well that's not easy. Yeah. Well, and let alone the the dynamics of the parents, you often hear of the fights between the older generation and the younger generation. Well, the younger generation wants to do things differently and maybe take on more risk and whatnot. And that's very challenging for the older generation, right? So there needs to be compromise. There needs to be where you have scheduled farm meetings, maybe once a week, or you have a whiteboard in the, the office or the shop where you're jotting down ideas of what the farm needs. And then you're bringing that conversation there again, maybe in a neutral area, whether you have a meeting or office space in the shop or something like that, but taking it away from the kitchen table because the kitchen table is kind of that sacred family space time. And you don't want to cause arguments there and then having not to want to come back to that area. Cause that's where, you know, the farm women or the wives in a lot of instances are talking to the sons or the daughters and then talking to the fathers, and, you know, they play that middle bouncy ball role. <laughs> I like it. I like that whiteboard. Cases, right? That whiteboard. That yeah. way, then you don't yeah. have to talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> but you're just jotting down notes, right? And then but you walk away. To be talked about. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No. It's the, you're avoiding talking about it. That's the best part of the whiteboard. I need no, to order one right no, now. You do have to talk about it. No. No, we're good. <laughs> Yeah, or if Grandpa still wants to come to the farm, you got his old recliner rocker chair that he goes there for his nap every, you know, every day at two, um, <laughs> and he just wants to be at the farm, right? Actually, that was probably yeah one of my most treasured memories with Dad is that we were going around because we were progressive farmers that were doing what we could to grow, and we did grow um, indeed quite fast. But we went to neighboring farmers 
the older ones that had maybe a quarter or two of land and, and, you know, had really old equipment and were just farming a little bit less and less every year, didn't maybe want to do the work themselves, and we'd approach them. And we'd say, hey, you know, if you ever want to rent your land or sell your land, you know, we'd be interested. And because I was there and I had that interest of farming, well, then you had this next generation that was going to help be a part of this process. But the most important thing that Dad said in those gatherings, you know, around their kitchen table in their home was that he asked them, he's like, well, would you be willing to help me with taking down this cross fence? If we were to farm it, we'd like to farm it all as one piece. And this cross fence, you know, is kind of half up, half down, old rotten wood posts. Would you help us with that work? So it's not just us taking something away from them, but involving and appreciating the hard work that, you know, that these older generations have put in their land. It's just part of who they are, but not neglecting the fact, you know, being respectful of their property, I suppose, and and involving them, being inclusive was kind of a, a, a neat thing. Okay. All right. Yes. Great idea. I've got to throw a warning flag on that. You, you've got to be careful too, because, well, not to get too into the weeds. I've done it too. And I knew that people still wanted to farm and I'm like, well, you know, sure. We can help run equipment and that you got to be really careful with that because then you get people that are just wanting to run your equipment for recreation and don't really care about the speed or efficiency that they're getting it done. I know what you're saying, but I do want to warn people right. that they better have those right, right, right. those lines yeah. of a communication that really tied down because you can't get mad at someone that's written your ground. You just can't, no matter how much you want to. Right. No, definitely. And I mean, it was just a thing that I was like, oh, I'm like, hey, that's great that he's being inclusive. And it was just a lesson that, mm-hmm. that I had learned. But no, I definitely... Yeah, everyone's going to be a little bit different. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I worked. I worked with different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah. Leona, you might not know this, but I was wondering if you had thought about this. If they would have had an updated will, what do you think would have happened? I think mom and dad's updated version, without talking to us, well, I, I kind of know what it kind of was. Because mom and dad had had the farm for sale for two years prior to them passing away. And and the reason behind that was they thought, well, hey, if there's some fool that wants to come pay us an exorbitant amount of money for this farm, why not? <laughs> you know, we can go do whatever, you know, they could essentially be set for life. They could go do whatever they wanted. So after they passed away, there was a good family friend of ours who came up to me and he asked me, if I knew why mom and dad really had the farm for sale. And I said, no. And his reply was, he said that because your mom and dad knew very well that two of you girls wanted to farm and mom and dad weren't going to force us to farm together on the farm or have to choose between which one of us was going to get the family farm and which one was not being Lynn and myself. So in dad's eyes, And I think it it came from his personal experience in the past where his dad, you know, reformed the whole farming company and had too many roosters in the rooster house, right? Where there was nobody to make the final decision. There was, you know, too many bosses, too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't want to say it now. (laughs) But, and so that didn't last long, right? That lasted like two months or something. Dad was like, I'm out of here. So from his personal experience with his family farm he didn't want to you know have to go through the same thing 
with his daughters. So that was dad's way of, nope, let's just sell it. And if the girls want to farm, I will help them start from scratch so that they can build the way they want to build and, and do things the way they want to do things. There again, too. And then if we sat down about it, you know, would we have decided then that Nin was the more appropriate one to take over the farm? And then, but what about the younger ones? What about the youngest two? And kind of work through it that way? I don't know. It's hard so to say. When is running the farm now? Lynn is running the farm, yep. Your, your parents' farm. Okay. I'll just go ahead and ask. I mean, was there ever any animosity over that? No, I don't think so. Because I helped out with seeding and harvest for as long as I could. Um, so I lived out at the family farm. I worked for John Deere for three years until the youngest graduated from high school. And then that's when I, I guess, we, yeah, we weren't quite done mom and dad's estate, but I had gone through enough of the process and been involved and kind of, you know, had such an eye opener about family farm succession planning that I wanted to learn more. So then I applied for an field scholarship, was awarded that and then studied succession planning around the world and that's where a lot of the travel came in for the next two years. And then in 2011 is when I started to do a lot of public speaking. So, no, I mean, animosity, definitely not. It's still the home family farm. You know, everybody goes there. You know, Lynn's definitely changing things around the house and renoing. And she's got three adorable kids. And her husband didn't come from a family farm. But, man, is he ever working hard on the farm. And mm-hmm. Lynn's just a kick-ass woman like she just started a farm app called farm bucks that gives grain prices in the local area for farmers (laughs) like from all the grain elevators yeah she's just dynamite killing it on the farm killing it with her app i mean all the girls are doing what they're passionate about youngest one married a farmer from home you know they own some cows and she's building a house just a few miles down from where the family farm is Mm -hmm. It's, it's really cool do you want to know my opinion Sure. Yeah. After listening to your interview yesterday on the What the Farm, I don't know if you would have been happy if you would have stayed back on your family's farm. It seems yeah. like to me you are mm-hmm. wired a little differently that you need to get out and see the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And then when I met my husband five years ago, when we started dating and he brought me up to the Yukon here, it was just, you know, a whole other world. And Farming north of the 60th parallel, I saw it as a huge challenge, but a challenge that I'm like, all right, sweet. I want to be one of the influencers up here to help motivate uh, agricultural growth because I see so much opportunity. We're only a population of 38,000 people in the Yukon. It's not very many people. (laughs) You know, everything has to get trucked up the highway. If something were to happen to the Alaska Highway, we only have enough food in Whitehorse for two days. Two days. Which is, oh, yeah, no. which is crazy, right? Yeah, which is crazy. So there's a lot of, you know, like hunters and gatherers and everybody does a lot of canning. And it's it's very homesteady-ish, off-the-grid-ish people that I heard do it what gets, they do. It gets cold up there, huh? You know what? It does. But winters up here, I'd say, are equivalent, if not a little bit better than where I grew up in northern Alberta because we're so close to the coast like we're only a two-hour drive from Skagway the Alaska border is just an hour away so we're so far west like we're even further did you pull out a globe to see where I did (laughs) yeah you're so (laughs) close to being an American I'm sorry (laughs) yeah well we are (laughs) 
yeah, there's so many more people in Alaska, but it, it is a really neat place. Almost 100% of people that come up here, their first response is, wow, this is still not what I thought it would be. Even the Northwest Territories where it's tundra-y, it's not like that at all. We have beautiful mountains and it's just a wonderful place to come to. I have open doors. Anybody that wants to come see me, please let me know. Sweet. Um, we'll give you a bit of a farm tour. And Do the reality shows about Alaska and Yukon and all that, are they anywhere even close to reality? Drama part, you can always tell is pretty corny and all set up and whatnot. Uh-huh. But yeah, I, like I'd say there's a lot of them that I haven't seen, but from what I think that they would be, I'd say that, yeah, I mean, they're pretty rustic and, you know, mountainous and adventurous. My husband's a pilot. Lynn's husband's a pilot. <laughs> you know, that, that fear of flying just because mom and dad you know, unfortunately passed away in a plane accident, didn't keep us from not ever going into a small plane or anything. Because there, Mm -hmm. again, it's a part of that living life, doing the things that you will never regret. For us, I mean, we're pretty fortunate. So we can just get away to one of our outfitting camps and, yeah. Oh, that's right. You're you're a damn outfitter. (laughs) Nobody likes outfitters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the Yukon's pretty special. I don't know. It's just a blast. It's a lot of fun with all the horses and and camps and planes and yeah, it's a little bit of farm that I that I grow some oats on to to have some forage feed for the horses in the winter. Okay, so five sisters, the farm, the loss of your parents, the estate, finding your way in the world through your travels and adventures. What do you hope people take away from listening to your story? I think that it's the inspiration and the motivation to live the lives that everybody really wants to live. And if you need help with that, there's a thing called the deathbed test. So if you need to close your eyes or just focus for a moment and think about how, if you were to die today or tomorrow, what would your biggest regrets be? Write them down and go and do those things. Because we want to live with little to no regret, if possible. We want to do the things that that are just yearning inside us to do before we're not here anymore. Because I think that it's so important to lead by setting a good example, being the person that you really want to be, doing the things that you really want to do, being selfless, caring lots about others. I say often that, you know, if you find yourself in a bad mood, do something nice for somebody else. And in a way, it's kind of selfish because it will, for sure, 100% make you feel human or like you're making a difference in the people around you. To be proactive, to, to think about the legacy that you want to live and then leave behind, and just being kind. That's hard to do. <laughs> being kind? <laughs> well, that's the hardest, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the one other thing that we didn't touch base on that I do often try to make mention of is funeral plans. So within your will, if we plan, go to your local funeral home, grab the three pages, three page document that they have that if you don't have filled out already uh, of your funeral wishes, if your family doesn't know, or if you've Mm -hmm. never spoken about it, whether you want to be cremated or buried, where you want to be buried, like, do you want it to be a celebration of life? Or is it going to be, you know, at the church and, and all these decisions that your family has to make in those few days after you pass away, when they're not in their right mind, 
can be challenging because later on you might have, right, they might have some regrets on how things might have become clear later on. And they're like, oh, yeah, they did say this once. And <laughs> and that's not what we did, right? Like, Do you, you remember know, that one did. time he said something about something yeah. that maybe was, <laughs> yeah. Wanted to be spread at the top of the mountain or whatever, right? I think it's weird when people put up the gravestones before they die. Mm, I'm assuming they're paying for it before they die. I, they're they are expensive. Yeah, <laughs> there's one just down the road. It's a brand new headstone, and it has like the pictures of the people on it, and they live in a house where they can see this gravestone, mm-hmm. so they can wake up every day and see their own gravestone. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's it. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I should just let stuff go and focus on the positive. Be more like Leanna. I think I'll probably cut that part out. (laughs) Oh, I promise you they don't listen. (laughs) Leanna, where can everybody find you? Like your social media and websites and that? Yeah, social media can be found at Leona uh, Yukon, Twitter, Instagram, and also on my website, leonawatson.com. Yeah, it's very cool. If you have not listened to the What the Farm podcast that Leslie and I put out yesterday, you should go back and listen to it because you're going to hear her talk very passionately about wanting to improve the world of agriculture for others. And it's it's a really cool interview. And as much as it pains me, um, I've got to give some props to uh, Leslie for uh, setting us all up. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Leona is I'm so fortunate to have met her a few years ago because, yeah, she is such an inspiration, and we are so lucky to have her in the industry. Okay, Leslie, it's this is my damn podcast. I get to end it any way I want to. Are we clear on that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I need a yes. I need you to confirm that we're clear on the ending is mine. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> can, I, can I say bye? No. Oh, All right, Leona Watson, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us today. And everybody else, we hope you catch us next week. Bye. The hell did I just get done telling her? (laughs) And thank you for listening to the Shark Farmer Podcast. I am your host, Rob Sharkey. Please visit us at www.sharkeyfarms.com. And just search for Shark Farmer to follow me on Twitter. Later. Later.